0: We are in a race. The race is against time. I've been a rich man and I have been a poor man and I choose rich every time. Don't be one of those people, 20 years from now, are gonna be walking around in a nine to five job, miserable and angry and bitter.
1: Welcome to Sound Conversations.
0: Andrew, welcome to Sound Conversations podcast. Great to have you here.
1: Yeah. Thank um, you.
0: Andrew, why don't you introduce yourself to our guests?
1: Okay. I, so I, I now own a small business up in Kirkland. Um, I uh, recently put together a group, uh, it might've been about six months ago, to buy out uh, it's a little electronic fan company uh, and we sell other electronic accessories, but primarily fans. Uh, to anywhere from Fortune 500 companies such as Microsoft, Google uh, down to individuals uh, building gaming PCs uh, up to Department of Defense. Wow. So fans to cool other electronic systems. Um, anywhere from server racks to uh, we sell to a company that manufactures industrial poultry uh, incubators. Hmm. um Yeah, you'd be surprised where our fans are. We were in the Super Bowl uh, and the LED signs that are surrounding it. Uh, We were selling to the OEM that had a contract with, I think, T-Mobile on that. Now, does that come with Super Bowl tickets? (laughs) Unfortunately, not for me. (laughs) Um, But Yeah, so uh, before that, I was living in Singapore, running a software company over there. Uh, And before that, I worked at one of the big investment banks for a couple of years. Our uh, listeners
0: uh, will uh, not know this, but we've known each other for close to nearly a decade. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, we met in Honolulu, uh, where I would like us to begin your story. So um, we're hoping to cover your entrepreneurial pursuits and talking with some um, uh, locals in Honolulu. I understand that your first venture in business was in kindergarten. Uh, Tell me about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Close to kindergarten. Um, when I was a, a kid, uh, my friend and I would go around to our neighbors and do yard work for them. And we'd, uh, take plants and, uh, clean up like overgrown areas. And then we repot what we collected and then sell those plants door to door to other neighbors. Uh, so that was ranging from bromeliads to orchids that were growing wild to, other tropical plants, and then uh, I, I took that one step further when I realized a lot of the plants I was seeing in plant stores were also growing in the mountains, wild. Uh, so I would hike up into the forests above my house um, and collect plants uh, in legally gray territory <laughs> uh, and sell those door to door too, but. I stopped when I was probably in fourth grade. That. <laughs> that's,
0: a, that's a little while ago for uh, anybody that's looking at the statue of limitation. Um, Andrew, tell me, what did you do with the funds that uh, resulted from, from the sales of, uh, of those plants? Were you investing it? Were you buying the latest games and, or sports equipment? I,
1: I never really got too into buying games. Uh, the hobby that I had as a kid uh it was more surrounding aquariums um at one point i had i think 12 different aquariums going um and i had little fish breeding systems um for endlers live bearers and a few other like, really easy to breed fish um and that i was thinking about doing is like a potential small business but it's really hard to actually break even on that um so yeah, most of the actual money that resulted, I uh, went to just my bank account to sit there. <laughs>
0: All right. Um, and so what was your next venture after uh, starting your your first one? Um, I mean, I, I just did a bunch of projects here and there. Okay. okay. Um, but Well, let me ask you a question. <clears throat> I've heard that you were the founder or co-founder of a frat house. <laughs>
1: So what you also didn't tell your listeners is you called my sister to find (laughs) out my background. (laughs) Who was who introduced us? (laughs) It's uh, journalism. Yeah, you did your due diligence on me. Um, Yeah, so uh, I had a few projects. Like uh, it was refounding a frat house uh, that was on our university. um, And it got kicked off for whatever reason 20 years before. Uh, But it had a lot of older alumni that wanted to bring it back. Uh, And myself and a group of my friends didn't want to join any fraternity, but the concept of creating something new appealed to us. Uh, So we ended up putting a group together, uh, getting it established on our campus. We got a house and in three years, I think we grew our membership to about 100 people. Great experience, uh, learning how to actual, actually form an organization with other persons um, yeah. and growing it. Um, did have one other little entrepreneurial project that was kind of interesting. Uh, where I, in high school, I uh, was able to partner with Moli'i Fish Ponds uh, out at Kulo Ranch. And we got 10,000 moi fingerlings, which are Pacific Threadfin. They're, type of fish, uh, which were donated from Oceanic Institute that just had a surplus um, that was going to put them all on ice. Um, And we restocked the pond with 100,000 of those fingerlings, and I was allowed to put 10,000 in a pen and try to grow them to market size. Oh, wow. Um, So that uh, was a great learning experience. The project ultimately ended in failure, which I think every entrepreneur needs to learn at least once uh, for me, more than once, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but it's details that you you don't think of um, that come back to bite you. You can't think of everything. You just try to mitigate risks as much as possible. Um, what got me on that one was uh, the fencing we used was small enough to keep the fingerlings in, uh, but we didn't do regular enough algae maintenance on the outside. So as that built up, uh, the water flow going through the pens was too low and there wasn't enough oxygen coming through. Um, so a significant portion of the fingerlings uh, actually suffocated, mm. unfortunately. That is unfortunate, but that is a, a lesson to take away
0: that <clears throat> failure is something to be uh, approached head on and, and get something from that experience, even though it doesn't result in your net uh,
1: uh you know the, the net result is not what you're looking for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we could have avoided if I had a better mentorship base or if I reached out to the existing contacts I had. Um, again, I was a high
0: school kid. So, so you you brought up an interesting point that I like to. We like to ask our guests. Um, it's you know who in their lives um, or what in their lives has been uh, a mentor or has influenced them in their pursuits. So. Back in high school, when you did this um, project, was there anybody
1: that um, you seeked out or seeked you out? To help yeah, you? so I, I would not have done that if it wasn't for my dad. Okay, um, He's, I, I would say, cautiously supportive uh, of all the little ventures I do. Um, but he's always had kind of that drive while he had his steady career as a government bureaucrat. Um, but yeah, he, he was one who kind of sparked the idea. Um, and then we took it off from there. Mm-hmm. At the time, he was running Oceanic Institute. Mm-hmm. So Very Interesting. Uh, yeah, and since then, I've been able to grow a, a commendable mentor base of people I respect, which has been huge and instrumental. Um, I think you'd be surprised how willing people are to help if you only reach out. That's sage advice you're you're a young entrepreneur uh,
0: you are uh, and you have accomplished a lot so what has what has driven you to go out and seek these uh, these opportunities and these
1: challenges I, I would say that I've experienced a lot okay. to be determined if I've ever if I've accomplished much yet okay. <laughs> but I have been fortunate enough to get a lot of experiences I I think, the primary factor is more one of risk tolerance than anything else. Um, where I, you could have been at a successful bank um, and worked your way up, worked really hard um, and had a successful career that way, um, which would, I'm sure have been fulfilling. Um, but there, There's trade-offs. And uh, I took a plunge to leave the bank and uh, start something on my own. Um, And then I think I got bit by the entrepreneurial bug on being able to kind of get an overview picture of everything I was doing rather than being pigeonholed in one specific role Mm -hmm. that large institutions are going to want to have you specialize in, um, which makes sense for them. But it just wasn't as encompassing as I I really was looking for. Um, but Yeah, it, uh, it's a brief synopsis. Well, it's
0: uh, <clears throat> it's interesting to our listeners because you know that risk, willingness to take risk, that threshold. Um, there's a lot of folks that are uh, perhaps in similar situations as you were at uh, the, the bank you worked at, and um, perhaps are hoping to to find that encouragement pursue the feelings that are leading them to look outside and see what else is out of there uh, you know looking at you know your experience working for a large successful uh, bank um, and going out of that environment and seeking opportunities it's a little bit like going outside of a nest in my world yeah and, yeah. and taking a
1: plunge so I don't think the entrepreneurial life is for everyone I um, no. And that's not a bad thing at all. Um, Some people just enjoy being in more of an operational role, which is great. Um, And there's a reason it's called risks. Um, One thing I've noticed since uh, leaving a large organization was a lot of those similar large companies all emphasize how they value employees who are risk takers. But when it comes down to it, I think that might be a lot more fluff than is actually true. Mm. Um, and the concept of being risk tolerant or being in a startup mentality is kind of a buzzword right now. Um, but there is the possibility of failure, and that's something a lot of people fear. Uh, rightfully so. It's not fun. I've gone through it a couple times. Andrew, I'd like to go back to your your frat
0: your your frat startup. I'm going to call it. Uh, you mentioned that <clears throat> you reached out to past alumni to help in the process of uh, restarting the frat. Um, you were, you know, in college, so a different demographic, different age group. How, when you were communicating with the alumni, uh, assuming they're older <clears throat> than you um, by some years, how was that how was that process? What was it like communicating with them? Uh, what were your challenges? Uh, what did you have to
1: overcome? Yeah, I. So, I mean, one of the things that that taught me is you do have to adapt yourself for certain circumstances, um, and I think the way fraternities are operated nowadays, with a lot of um, structures in place to avoid unnecessary risk. Um it's probably a lot different in the 70s and 60s when they were going through uh, college. So uh, they were looking to bring back kind of that 70s type mentality and finding a kind of middle ground on how to navigate with them saying, yeah, we can still connect with you on X, Y, and Z, but times have changed and we do have to adapt to this. Uh, that translated quite a bit going forward in negotiating, whether it's negotiating with angel investors, uh, it that was a useful skill set. Um, and the contacts I made there uh, were fairly significant. Um, so being able to see people who were successful in their careers but still went through a cir- similar circumstance in life that I was able to um, was Definitely helpful going forward. Interesting. Um,
0: So it sounds like communication, being able to uh, negotiate and overcome sort of a perception uh, were important critical skills to help you become successful in this process. Um, And then I understand you started a surfing club in Seattle.
1: So that definitely taught me sales skills, Uh, convincing people to get in the water in Washington. Required a pitch (laughs) and quite a bit of convincing. Uh, But I did start a surfing club while I was in college. um, And I think we taught something like 150 people to surf. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Uh, Between myself and the co founder of the club. Mm -hmm. Um, That's one key thing. If you're looking for skill sets, Um, finding the right partners is key. Uh, you have to know that you aren't good at everything. Find what you're not good at. Find someone who complements your skill set, and be able to kind of push forward from there. Is it is it an intuition when it comes to finding your partner? Is it a uh, trial and error? Is it a combination uh, of both? For for that instance, it was more just uh, just a happenstance, um, but. I think a lot of it, if you are doing it for a bigger venture than starting a surf club in college, which primarily was to fund my own private surf trips, <laughs> <laughs> uh, while I got to teach other people to surf, and I got a few people hooked on it. Um, but in the end, we taught, I think, uh, about 150 people to surf. And this is in Seattle, which is, as folks know, not a tropical
0: destination.
1: Yeah, yeah. we, uh, we would go to Westport. Um, to the surf shop ran by Al Perley. A shameless plug for that guy. He is great. Um, he's actually a really funny guy. If you ever go down there, Stanford grad who played football at Stanford and decided to put up a little surf shop in rural Washington. Wow. Um, but yeah, we had a great relationship. We'd always rent stuff from him. He gave us a bunch of deals. And um, what kind of boards were you guys using for the surf school? We would just, we would rent soft tops for them. Um, so generally I did about 15 minutes, uh, sorry, 15 minutes of beach instruction, mm-hmm. uh, then we would go out and I would help people out in the water for about half an hour and then I would let them go on their own and I would go off and surf myself. Now, were you on a board at this time or were you knee high, waist high water? Where they were surfing was uh, in probably waist high water okay. um, and just catching white water or already broken waves into shore, um, but I was not on a board, uh, so I'd be in the water with them uh, so I could help them if they did have any uh, any issues. Interesting. Well, you know, I, uh,
0: I would expect that a, a fair amount of people have tried surfing in Seattle, but a lot probably haven't. So if you were to give us a description of what the surfing experience is like and why it should be experienced
1: Uh, a little pitch for your surfing club in the day what would it be a lot of people have surfed in more tropical environments and i consider it a completely different sport Hmm. Uh, so you're in this little bubble and it feels like more you're playing a video game Uh, it's the your body's completely warm you're wearing gloves booties a hood but you have this little exposed area on your face, um, so that will be cold. But the rest of your body's warm, and you feel somewhat detached from everything. Hmm. You can't. You can almost not feel the water, um, which is fun. Uh, it's a unique experience, Very nice. which I don't think people should pass up. Very cool.
0: So after the surf club, uh, you start working for the bank, and then you realize that it was time to go. There was an exit uh, time frame.
1: Yeah, I, again, great bank. Yeah, <laughs> um, one of the large investment banks. Mm-hmm. Um, what were you What were you doing there? So I was in private wealth management. Okay, um, I was on a team that operated kind of like a boutique hedge fund within the uh, private wealth management division. We had a bunch of money from insurance companies. Um, and we were managing more or less some of their float. Mm. Um, so we also did a, a few uh, high net worth individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But the majority of the assets we were managing were insurance company money. How much time did you spend at the bank? I, I was there a little under two years. Okay. Um, and do you mean time is in like hours worked or? <laughs> No, I mean, as in uh, uh, calendar time. Oh, so yeah, two, a little under two years. Yeah, a little under
0: two years. All right. So, you were working. You were, you know, you're were, you're were doing your thing at the bank, and then I'm I'm guessing a small voice inside of you said it's time for a change.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, um, the story behind that is we were able to do a private equity deal with one of our clients, mm-hmm. um, and one of the the funds the private equity funds that uh, we were pitching to our client was uh, an internal fund um, at the time where they didn't want to disclose many of the actual holdings Mm -hmm. Um, so that was something that was uncomfortable with the client uh, which i can understand Uh, but i started digging a little bit more into the private equity fund and i started thinking why can't you replicate this on a smaller scale Uh, where your actual return multiples and your uh, acquisition, return multiples are higher, acquisition multiples are lower. Um, So I left the bank to start up a search fund, Mm. which is uh, essentially a micro private equity firm where uh, you get together a bunch of capital and you buy out private companies. Um, And that's the search fund? That's a search fund. If any of your listeners are interested in search funds, Stanford Business School has tons of great documentation on search funds since the early 90s, late 80s. Hmm. Um, So how is that different than a hedge fund or a uh, private equity company? So it's not really different from a private equity company. It's just more you're coming in with an operational... um, an operational drive to. Um, So normally, search funds go after either uh, one specific uh, region or they go after one specific um, industry. So uh, for myself, I was able to have a lot of connections back in Hawaii. So I left the bank to go after uh, companies around Hawaii, And I was looking for a roll up opportunity. Um, And why Hawaii out of all 50 states in the union? So, my value add is really my family goes pretty far back in Hawaii. uh, And I was able to have a fair amount of connections there. Yeah. uh, Two small businesses. Um, So, it's a very insular state and it's hard to get in if you don't have existing connections. Um,
0: Yeah. and I've heard a statistic, I'm not sure if it's factual, but uh, there was a statistic a couple of years ago that Hawaii has one of the largest small business uh, concentrations hmm. in the United States.
1: Yeah, that one surprised me. I, Hawaii's economy is dominated by three primary industries, uh, tourism, construction slash real estate, and uh, government slash military. So. Among those three, it probably encompasses ninety-five percent of the entire economy. Um, so a lot of the small businesses, and of course, I'm including like restaurants in that tourism category. Mm-hmm. Um, but among those, uh, among those three, is really where you have your small businesses centered, uh, or at least the majority of them. Mm. So the pickings are slightly slim if you are looking for industry specialization. Um, but it's there is opportunity, you just have to prepare to take life down a pace. Uh, which going from the bank to Hawaii, I thought I was ready to do. When I got there, I realized I was not ready to do, which brings me to Singapore. Yeah. Um, one of our investors uh, introduced me to one of his partners in Singapore who, um, who was starting up this little software company um, and they were looking for somebody on the ground to actually run operations, build up their office, um, build up their client base, um, who still had a understanding of both finance. And what was the software company? What did it do? So we connected boutique adventure operators to <laughs> international travelers. Um, so if you wanted to go to Bali and book a whitewater rafting adventure for one day, all the way up to go to Everest Base Camp. Uh, we could connect you to the uh, the son of Tenzing Norgai, um, who is uh, Edmund Hillary's Sherpa going up Everest. Wow. Edmund Hillary was the first person to summit Everest, while uh, Tenzing Norgai actually carried all of his Stuff as he went up <laughs> and was right behind him the entire way uh, so it, yeah we we got to build this really nice base database of operators who were uploading their own products um, and you can connect directly to them we were just the platform hmm. um, so similar to Airbnb catered for more high-end adventure travel and I understand
0: this typically was an offline market that you guys wanted to turn it online, right? Yeah,
1: so the way the industry was operating was significantly offline, Mm -hmm. um, especially when you get to the more boutique operators outside of major cities, uh, which really was what we were going after. Out of your early skills that you
0: gained as an entrepreneur, uh, whether it was negotiating sales skills or um, others, what, what were the skills that you were using In being involved in this offline, now turned online business?
1: Uh, So, I think a big one was just dealing with customers, dealing with suppliers, um, reaching out to people. And the key theme was relentless grit, (laughs) uh, where you just don't stop and you are able to take rejection and able to take failure. And I, I personally think that's one of the uh, greatest skill sets you can gain. Um, but yeah, so we we set up a team in Manila. Uh, all three of our directors are uh, Filipino businessmen. or, or um, And we were able to get connections to build up an office in Manila. Uh, we built out a sales team there. We built out a development team, an uh, internal development team after we did our minimal viable product. Uh, and then we, uh, yeah, we were able to launch the product. You launched the product,
0: and now you're on the ground in <clears throat> Singapore. You have a team in Manila. Um, how how did you communicate
1: remotely, and and what what was it like? So we, I started the day every day. Luckily, we were in the same time zone.
0: Okay, that's uh, good, which was huge.
1: Uh, but we started the day at 8 a.m with a all-team meeting for 15 minutes just to get everyone on the same page uh, we used various project management tools mm-hmm. um, to coordinate between teams we uh, we would always be online whether it was through whatsapp through skype um, or other various tools with that being said we were a lot more efficient every time i went to manila Mm-hmm. Just being able to interact with people face-to-face was huge. Um, so I, I probably was flying to Manila every three weeks to meet with them, which is about a two and a half hour flight, so it's not too bad. Um, and then probably every three weeks I was also traveling to meet with other operators. Uh, so we had operators in Nepal, Indonesia, Malaysia, Sri Lanka, uh, the Philippines. Vietnam, Thailand, so all throughout Southeast Asia. Very cool. While you
0: were while you were traveling for business, did you have like a uh, travel kit that you would always bring? So, you know, to to make your travel uh, more comfortable,
1: was there a a, you know go to? I think the go to gadget I had was a portable charger. Portable charger. Any of your listeners. Don't have a portable charger and travel frequently, buy one right now. (laughs) They're (laughs) super cheap. Okay. Uh, Yeah, that that was a nightmare when I left that at home. But aside from that, I'd have uh, my laptop everywhere I went, um, which got sketchy every now and then. Uh, And uh, yeah, I had brochures.
0: so, when you were interacting with your operators, <clears throat> this is the, the people that are doing the events or the, the experiences, rather. Was it difficult to convince them to go online? So, maybe go from, again, you know, being an offline business to being on your site and connecting with potential users?
1: It was very difficult going from a verbal commitment to them actually doing something. Um, People were very quick to say, yeah, that sounds great, uh, verbally. Especially because we didn't charge any flat fee. um, And the only way we made money was if they made money. um, which It made it an easy pitch. uh, And our pricing was below some of our competitors. So uh, the sales pitch wasn't too hard. The act of actually getting someone offline and adapting them to new technology and training them behind it did have its difficulties,
0: and was it because it it, it was not something that they had experiences with in the past being online, or was it because they uh, were there was a cultural challenge there
1: with this idea? Yeah, so we we initially had them do everything, and we wanted to be left completely out of it. Mm-hmm. We realized their content wasn't quite as good when we did that, mm-hmm. so we had a content manager who started screening every single product that went on, and that was her entire job, to go through every single listing that they would put up, edit the uh, the actual text behind it, edit descriptions, um, maybe offer them some photo editing. We would reach out to them and say, I'm sorry, this photo isn't good enough. Uh, You need to either hire a contractor, then we give them a list of contractors in their region uh, to take photos. Or um, you can buy a better camera <laughs> or um, here's, some, here's some picture examples that you could exactly. You could so use. We'd, we'd, set, we'd send them templates on how to do things. We had a how-to video um, that shows them where to click when. Um, I think the big thing was just getting them on our platform in developing countries where internet was not always the fastest or most reliable. Which is frustrating to them if they're trying for an hour, but they just can't connect, um, and then they get disconnected halfway through writing whatever it is, uh, so they have to start from scratch, which might take them a super long time. You can see that being a frustrating experience, yeah. So you did that
0: for a couple of years. Yeah. So I did that for about two years. Okay. Um. And then you came back to Seattle. Yeah. I
1: so. Uh, when I left the company, it was kind of a visionary difference between myself and the directors of the company um, on where we thought the, the opportunity lied. Uh, I was looking more in the B2C area. Mm-hmm. They wanted to stick more to B2B and just be more of a payment processor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I ended up leaving the company and uh, moved back to Seattle. Uh, I guess nine months ago now, something around that. How does it feel to be back? I mean, Singapore,
0: Southeast Asia, traveling to exotic locales and destinations and, and being back in the Pacific Northwest, how does it feel to be back? I, it feels great. I
1: I missed a lot about uh, Seattle while I was in Singapore. And I missed a lot about Singapore now that I'm in Seattle. but. Well, my fiance and I were in Singapore, we were talking about where we wanted to go eventually. We knew Singapore wasn't an extremely long-term thing, Um, and we missed the mountains. We missed having access to outdoor activities while still being in a place where it is Um, business-oriented, and we love Seattle in general. Great city, in my opinion. Um.
0: We we enjoy it. It's uh, Seattle is is fantastic. You mentioned you like the outdoors and uh, and trees and animals. Yeah, yeah. What uh, what doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> I I think there may be a couple of people that uh, may not have as much of an affinity for the outdoors as you do. But tell us what are your what are your interests in the outdoors? What are your sports
1: outside of surfing? I uh, so brought up surfing, um, brought up fishing in Hawaii, which translates well to the Northwest. Um, I was lucky enough growing up to be able to go to Whistler every year. Uh, so beautiful mountain, yeah, yeah, Whistler's great. Um, so skiing and snowboarding has been a big part of my life too. Uh, and A spark that made me come to the Northwest to begin with. Um, But yeah, just most outdoor activities I'll
0: enjoy. (laughs) So, nine months into being back in the Pacific Northwest, uh, you uh, made a purchase, business purchase. You acquired uh, a company called Cooler Guys.
1: Yep. Yeah. So, uh, we. uh, Tell us more about that. So, what Cooler Guys does is uh, manufacture and wholesale uh, electronic fans and accessories for uh, computer components and other electronic components. Um, and we uh, sell worldwide. So, we'll sell anywhere from Foxconn Tijuana to US Department of Defense to some guy in. Uh, We'll just say Germany building his own PC, um, and then we have suppliers who are mostly throughout uh, Asia, but we do source locally when we can. Um, so we have some suppliers up in Woodinville, some down in Tacoma. Interesting.
0: Uh, so, so Cooler Guys is a uh, commercial fan company, mm-hmm. right? And and you're saying you guys are sourcing uh, from both locally as well as internationally. Uh, please tell. A, Tell our listeners what is it like uh, doing business abroad, and what are the challenges, if any, in being able to bring um, you know bring bring the fans or the components of the fans to the United States. Uh, and
1: yeah, so we uh, we source most of our stuff from China. Uh, we do wholesale a lot of brands out of Taiwan. Uh, But most of our privately branded uh, products do come out of China. We have a partnership with a guy down in LA who owns uh, at least two different factories in China. Um, And he has his whole R&D division uh, where we can just basically use him as an ODM. uh, What does that mean? It's an original design manufacturer uh, who... Basically, you will give him the specs, and he'll build out a product from there. Um, So, for instance, you could say, all right, we need a fan that's 120 millimeters, it has decibels of uh, 18, um, and will blow maybe 20 CFM, um, which is cubic feet per meter. Anyway, airflow. (laughs) Uh, so, and he'll be the guy who goes down and actually figures it out, gets something to your specifications if he can, uh, or kind of sees what he can do to fit whatever you need.
0: So, with the, um, uh, so you mentioned Taiwan, uh, there was a recent earthquake there. Did that impact your guys' uh,
1: business at all? Not that I know of. Okay. Uh, it could have through one of the actual, suppliers factories over there if it did they didn't tell us again um so we're not i we're not super connected to the actual factories we're more dealing with their u.s representatives that is something we're looking to change down the road um but there's a huge value to be had from uh going directly to somebody who already has relationships with those uh, types of organizations internationally. Especially if you go outside of the US, relationships matter everywhere. I would say that's even more so in parts of Asia. Mm. Um, But he, whenever he can't source something directly in his factory, he has a connection in another factory. And I believe that we are Eighty to ninety percent of all his business. Um, so we more or less have one to two factories devoted just to us over there. But we don't have to deal with the regulatory issues and the logistical side of running factories in China. That's nice. So
0: Andrew, uh, being a young entrepreneur, how does one how does one find a one find a business to buy, uh, and two? How do you make a choice to buy a specific business?
1: I think the big thing is networking. Uh, When I was running the search fund back in Hawaii, we looked at four dozen different companies, entered letter of intent on, I want to say eight of those, um, and entered contract on one, ended up pulling out of that one. So it's really a numbers game. Uh, If you are seriously looking for acquisition you just got to get your name out there start pushing yourself Uh, use centers of influence so if you know a CPA who does do a lot of small business accounting uh, tell him hey I have a little group that's looking to acquire a business if you know a lawyer who does maybe um, retirement planning or uh, mergers and acquisitions say hey uh, this is what I'm doing Let me know if you have any potential people who are looking to exit their business. Uh, Same thing goes if you have a financial advisor who also deals with retirement plans or something or uh, succession planning. Um, I think the big thing is just getting your name out there, letting people know what you want to do um, and kind of going from there. Uh, Those are great suggestions.
0: Um, What about establishing credibility? Once you get past those what I call gatekeepers um, to the business owner. How do you establish credibility with them? How do you share with them that you can be uh, uh,
1: valuable to the the sellers? The right, business, yeah. okay. To the I a lot of small business owners spent their entire career or at least decades uh, building up their business, so it is an emotional thing for them. I I would say one thing is show your value add. So come in what i have always done is say where i would improve their business just to start um show some knowledge of the industry so you know okay you guys might be using adwords but uh, i looked around on bing notice you haven't had any big bing campaigns have you explored uh pushing Pinterest campaigns, have you explored Instagram? Uh, Notice maybe your Facebook following isn't good enough. Um, If you are adding value from a marketing side, if you're adding value from a supply chain side, maybe ask. I I see a lot of your stuff is sourced from XYZ manufacturer. Uh, What type of freight forwarders are you using? Uh, I think the big thing is just showing where you can add value.
0: Would you recommend to our listeners that are interested in this pursuit that they need to do their research and due diligence and spend time before
1: they meet with the business owner? So I definitely recommend that you do your due diligence and do as much research as possible going into it um, because it is a huge commitment. Mm -hmm. And if you think any small business is turnkey, you're fooling yourself, they're not. it is going to take a significant portion of your time, even if they already have complete management in place. Uh, if you do want to at least have a long-term business, how
0: much time would you recommend to somebody to uh, to spend <clears throat> doing due diligence on the industry uh, and and the business? I mean, this is typically a significant financial uh, commitment on the buyer side and the seller side.
1: Absolutely. I, so, I mean, there's a fine balance between spending too much time researching something mm-hmm. and never pulling the trigger and not spending enough time and going too quickly and getting into something you shouldn't get into. I definitely think if you are looking into an acquisition, look at at least 10 companies before you buy whatever you get. Um, just so you do go through the process of looking at companies, maybe Put some on, on the bench for a while while you review other options. Um, but you really won't know what you're getting into until you actually do get into the business. Um, and if you get into something and you sleep fine after doing it and aren't worried about anything, that probably means you miss something. Mm, interesting. That's one thing that one of my mentors told me back in Hawaii. Mm. Um, who. Yeah, it's completely true. And you you were talking
0: about mentors, and I think that is such a such an interesting thing for a lot of our listeners to learn more about. How do you find the mentor? Um, How do you foster that relationship? Uh, And you know how to properly start engage with them in this process.
1: Yeah. So I. The way that I found most of my mentors were uh, through either business contacts, family, friends, or just people I looked look up to in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the biggest thing that I learned is you just can't be afraid to reach out and ask for help. Ask to sit down for coffee. Uh, you don't have to formally ask for somebody to be a mentor. I think that might be a little bit weird, <laughs> but I. Uh, yeah, they, again, everyone's been really receptive when I do reach out to them. Uh, people, I think, are a lot more keen to be transparent than you would expect. Uh, so I haven't really dealt with issues behind not being able to get contacts. Uh, I think a big part of that's just, again, willingness to put yourself out there.
0: So, so when you find somebody that you <clears throat> feel would be... Um helpful towards your, your venture as a mentor. Uh, how do you engage with them? Do you ask them to help you with a specific uh, issue? Is it mostly you know getting sort of a sounding board to help overcome a question, yeah, an issue?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a combination of things, so I would definitely go in with some kind of plan of what you want to get out of the meeting. Um, don't just say, hey. On want to buy a business. Help me. <laughs> um, but maybe if you're at that stage, you can find someone who has gone through the process and they can at least guide you in the first steps. So that might actually work, uh, on saying, okay, what are you good at? What do you enjoy doing? Um, and work in those aligned. Um, but I think most times when I set up meetings, um, it is someone with a specific skill set or somebody who I know had a specific experience um, and that uh, they have specific guidance on whatever I'm going through at that point. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So Andrew, um, what's
0: influenced you in your life um, or things that have influenced you in your life? Were there books, teachers, family members, uh, podcasts? or uh, locations that have helped you get to where you are today and helped you become the entrepreneur that you are?
1: I think it's been a lot of friends and family. Um, so I would say those that's the largest sphere of influ- influence that I have. Um, I think all the large decisions I've made, uh, whether in life or in my career, I've had some kind of sounding board that I was able to fall back on and at least uh, verbalize something out loud. Whether or not I listen to what they say is different, but I'm at least able to hear thoughts, hear perspectives um, of people that I do respect. So that's been a big benefit that I've had, luckily. Uh, And I was able to surround myself in a community of people that I respect I think that's one of the big things is if you are in a toxic community, uh, just look for a way to better yourself by putting yourself in a new environment.
0: That's that's, uh, that's important. That's a great suggestion. I think that's very helpful to some people that may be in those toxic environments and they're looking to get out and, and
1: uh, find or build a better future for themselves. There's always um, no people out there. What's that? There's always people who will... Uh, just say no to anything and tear down any ideas. Yeah, which uh, it's okay to be a realist, but to be a pessimist is different.
0: Um, okay, so what is one? What is a book that you have uh, recommended to your friends and family? The feeling you'd ask me about a book.
1: Uh, so
0: sorry, I'm a bookworm.
1: Yeah, I I think the Bible of at least the investment business, is The Intelligent Investor by Ben Graham. Um, Buffett cites it as his Bible also. Uh, ben Graham was Buffett's mentor, and he's considered the v- father of value investing. Okay. Um, and it's relatively short, too. Um, he Ben Graham writes another book, Security Analysis, if you really want to dig into it. But it's kind of boring,
0: I'm <laughs> going to be honest. Okay. So that's good sleep material, right?
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would say intelligent investors get sleep material. Security analysis is more like I'm going to bunker myself in a library material. Uh, as far as interesting books, uh, as I just read a book called uh, Midnight at the Para Palace, which is on uh, Istanbul back in the early 20th century, which I was that's one part of the world I've never been to. Now that takes place in Istanbul
0: uh, during the uh, post, uh, post-Ottoman post empire, beginning of the Turkish uh Yeah, so it, it goes yeah.
1: up until pretty much the end of World War II. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, might be the beginning of World War II. Now, I, I am a
0: fan of that book, because I, I think it reads like a novel. Um, yeah.
1: How did you come across it? It was recommended okay. by a friend. Okay. <laughs> Uh,
0: and how's it going so far? Do you like it?
1: I finished the book. You
0: finished it? Yeah.
1: Okay. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. I've really been getting into audiobooks recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now I'm listening to, uh, what is it? A Tale of Two Cities by Dickens. I'm revisiting the classics. That's awesome. Um, what what's in your uh, what's your next uh, book in the list? I actually, haven't thought of one. Okay. Do you have any recommendations? Uh, Putting this
0: one on you. <laughs> you know, I just finished a really good book. I'm a fan of Hemingway. <clears throat> uh, his writing uh, was uh, very revolutionary at the time. Uh, he uh, also top covered a lot of topics that I feel are intriguing um, because you know he was a uh, journalist during the Spanish Civil War. And he was uh, in in combat as well, or in combat situations. Uh, So I just uh, started reading um, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Hmm. which is a classic. And it it talks about the Spanish Civil War against Franco. So that is a very interesting book. uh, It's got a lot of uh, action, a lot of suspense, and a lot of drama. So I would highly recommend that to anybody. Andrew, thank you so much for coming to Sound Conversations. We look forward to having you as a future guest to talk more about Cooler Guys and what you guys are doing uh, to grow the commercial fan business.
1: It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> the dad jokes are endless.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, thank you for taking your time.
1: Yeah, thank you, Chris. Aloha. Ahoi
0: I've been a rich man and I have been a poor man and I choose rich every f- time. Don't be one of those people 20 years from now are gonna be walking around in a nine to five job miserable and angry and bitter.
1: Sound Conversations.